Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Boy, that was awesome singing. Sounded really, really good. Nice to have folks in the service again, isn't it? What a blessing. I was just having some folks say that earlier in the first service. And uh, just nice for God's people to get together. One lady said to me, we just got to look at each other in our eyes. And uh, so it's a blessing to have you here. But those of you that are at home uh, by watching uh, through Facebook, we're glad to have you with us. And those of you that are watching live by YouTube, we're glad to have you with us as well as God's word go out. Boy, we are a church that loves Jesus, and uh, we want to proclaim his name and proclaim him in everything that we do. So that's our purpose, and that's our goal. Uh, speaking of which, just a couple of announcements here, talking about the name of the Lord. We've had a marvelous time the last couple Tuesday nights at 630 uh, in prayer and putting that out on Facebook as well. This week we will not be doing that. Okay, it looks like it's supposed to rain. We were doing that outside. Uh, but we are going to continue to be praying people. So I would encourage you to continue to pray about the things that are going on in our nation and, and uh, certainly across the world. So just as you, as you know that. Okay, all right. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then uh, we'll begin our, our time together in the word. Father, we glorify your name. And, uh, really, that's all we want to do. Because you have rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And Lord, how could we do anything but fall on our faces spiritually before you and even literally. And just praise you until you come again and on into eternity. Lord, thank you for coming. Thank you for giving of your life sacrificially. Thank you for opening our eyes. Not that we're better than anyone else. But you've just given us the grace to understand who you are. And so we come worshiping you today and asking questions as our flesh needs answers for things in this life. And we pray that you would give us clarity now as we look into your word over this very important subject. Thank you, Father, for all that you are and who you are. Give us now the opportunity and the privilege to just push away the distractions of our lives, uh, the mental things that come into our hearts as we Try to focus on you and just give us a, a singular focus just for a few minutes as we hear from you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, as a result of last week's message, those of you that were here know that I preached from 1 Peter chapter 2 on obeying authority. Uh, that's what God has told us to do. Uh, I received a couple of comments, uh, one through email from one of our church members and then another person also asking a question. And I thought it would be wise to go through Scripture again and reiterate some points, but really try to address one of the questions that was brought up. And so I asked the person if it would be all right, uh, got their permission to share with you their email to me, and they said, certainly, that's fine. And uh, we had a great time talking through some of this, and I came to some conclusions. And so I want to read to you that email so that you'll know exactly what's happening here uh, and you'll, you'll get the gist of it. Now, again, if you haven't been with us, uh, last week I did preach on the subject of authority just because of all that's going on in our culture. Uh, you know, I don't have to tell you what's happening, uh, but authority in general, not just the police, but authority in general are being attacked greatly. And so we want to hear what the Lord says. Uh, my purpose is never to preach on opinion or concepts or ideas or what feels good or what doesn't feel good. My, my purpose in life is to preach exactly what the Lord has said. And when it's my opinion, I'll tell you my opinion, and that goes about that far. And so we're not going to worry about that, but I'll tell you my opinion, just like you have opinions. What we want to do, though, is search the mind of God so that we know what God wants. And that's really to us all that's important. 
So just so you understand where we're coming from, okay? So here's the email. It said, after listening to your sermon today, this was last week, I have a question. I completely believe that God is in control and that all authority is his. And that's where we were last time. My question is this. Is the Constitution not our governing authority which God has placed over us in this country? When many of our leaders have thrown the Constitution aside to grab power for themselves to do what they want to do, are we to just follow them and allow them to take away the freedoms which God has given us as stated in our Constitution? When our founding fathers revolted against England, God seemed to have blessed them, maybe not them, but our country, because of it. Now, again, I don't know if you're like me, but that that to me was a really good question. How are we to uh, act and live in this country under the government that God has given to us when it seems like things are going in a way that shouldn't be. So those were my thoughts. But when I contacted the person, I, uh, we together mutually agreed that the real question that was being asked of, of this person and, and even of the other person I mentioned was that as a Christian, here's the question, as a Christian, what are my rights under an authority I don't necessarily agree with? Okay, What are my rights as a Christian under an authority I don't agree with. In other words, what do I do when I don't have control over a government and that government appears to be operating from a place of evil intent? That really became the impetus for the question or what the foundation of the question is all about. Now, you have two options, basically, in response to that as the way I see it. Number one, you can leave that country. Uh, I'm not trying to be funny, Although it sounds funny, but that's legitimate, right? You can leave that country, which is exactly what our forefathers did. They pursued God in England until they felt like it was not going to work. And so they left and formed another country. That's what they did. And that becomes pretty clear. And we've been the beneficiaries of all of that. And I'll say more about that in just a little bit. But there are some Christians that don't have the ability to leave the country. When we talk about the communist bloc countries, when we talk about North Korea, uh, when we talk about China, we talk about places like that across the world, uh, that there are many, many, many Christians who are there and have no ability to leave. And so what do they do? What's the issue with them? Well, as we learned last time, they are to submit to the government that God has in place over them, just as he said in 1 Peter chapter 2. Whoever or whatever law there is at the time, they are to submit to that. That's challenging. That's challenging. Okay, and we'll talk about that again in just a second as well. Option number two, you do exactly what and only what that government allows you to do legally. You do only what that government allows you to do legally. Now, if you think with me just for a minute, I want to review here just a little bit, is that Jesus nor his apostles nor anyone else who was truly following the Lord in the days of the scripture ever encouraged mutiny. We never see that. Jesus never promoted violence or rebellion against any form of government. That was not his purpose in coming. He never rebelled against any authority. In fact, we have no record of him or anything from God calling God's people to usurp the authority that is in place. But to live, we do have this very clearly, and that is to live under the authority in a peaceful, submissive way. Okay, now you say, well, I know scripture, and I know that God commanded Israel, 
many years ago to rebel against the authorities that were in place in other other lands as God was giving to uh, them that promised country. And it is true that God did command the killing of all people who were evil in those lands that God was giving to the Hebrews as their own possession. But that was different. It was different in the sense that God was doing a one-time thing in in establishing a nation for himself. And God was commanding that because he knew that if you don't deal with the evil, if he didn't deal with the evil in a right way, that nation would not ever be established the way that he wanted it to be established. Because God was all about fulfilling his covenant promise through Abraham and ultimately bringing in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God was giving to the world a picture of a nation that was following him. That's the whole purpose of Israel, to bring in the Messiah, of course, but also to be that nation that pictured righteousness and holiness and godliness so the rest of the world would know who this God of Israel is. The problem is, as you and I know, they rejected the God who had come and who had sent the Messiah. And I'm fast-forwarding a lot here. So what God had commanded at one time in one place was very unique and was for a very specific purpose. After that, when Israel rejected what God had done in providing the Messiah, God then began the church and the church, we're taught, has been called to obey the authorities that are in place. And so we've got to see a distinction there in this situation with Israel at that one time in history versus what God calls for his people to live under at this point. Because we've been hearing even some people saying, well, the only way that this is going to work for government to change is for me to riot and to overthrow government, basically, and to voice myself physically that way, but not the church. God's people have never been called to that kind of thing, but we have been called clearly to live under the authority that is in place because God is the one and the only one who puts authority in in place. And that's where we were last time. We saw that very clearly in 1 Peter chapter 2. And that's why the answer we're most concerned with for us as God's people is this very uh, option here. Is that is we are to do exactly what the government allows us to do legally to be heard. So now, with that answer in place, and hopefully you understand what I'm saying here, let's look at scripture and see if we can get that from what God has said to us. Because again, the important point is not what I think. I'm just a man with a fleshly heart like any other person out there who's been called by God for one purpose, and that is to deliver his message. Not my message, but his message. So let's see what God says. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet as we read the word of God. And I want to, I want to look at two texts of scripture this morning, one from last week, Actually, both from last week, but we want to reiterate this and get it firmly established in our minds. Now, before I read that, I want to give you the title, and that is A Christian's Rights Biblically Under Any Authority. Now, I chose my words very carefully there because I think they're accurate. A Christian's Rights Biblically Under Any Authority. Okay. All right, now let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. So Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And now in Romans chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. All right. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Now, let me clarify the backdrop to what Peter and uh, uh, the Apostle Paul are writing against. The backdrop is, some years apart, they're writing under the dictatorship of Nero. Nero, if you know history at all, was a ruthless, very selfish, very demanding person who believed himself even to be of godlike status. Okay? One of the things that I mentioned last week in this backdrop, and this is for those of you who are here today, uh, is that Nero had an insatiable desire to build, and he constantly wanted to build Rome. And when he had nothing else to build, he decided he would burn some things down. And people got wind of that, and that was so he could rebuild. People got wind of that, started looking to Nero. Nero had to disperse all of that thinking, and he pointed to the Christians. And he said, these people out here, these non-Jews, these ones who are following this Messiah, they're the problem, they're the ones who set fire to the city, and then a, a rampage against God's people took place. And they were horrific the things that were done to them, from the circus being fed to lions uh, to being covered with tar, uh, being left in various places, buried alive except for their head, uh, their heads, um, being lit on fire for light of the streets at night. And it is in that backdrop that both Peter and Paul write these words from God. No matter who the authority is, you as God's people are to submit to them. Very challenging. Very, very challenging. And I would just say that in our culture today, in these months that we've been enduring and seeing and even currently going through, we're feeling the effects of what it means to submit to a government that we sometimes struggle with and don't understand the decisions, and yet we as God's people come back to the Word of God and we say, okay, It doesn't matter what we think or feel. What matters is what God has said. And God has said we are to submit to who those earthly authorities are. Now, last week we talked about the ifs, ands, and buts, a little bit of that, and what that looked like. Today we want to answer this question. Okay, if I am struggling as a believer, what am I supposed to do and why exactly am I to follow them? If the answer is to do legally what they say, then what really are the reasons for that? And so let me give you five of them today. Number one, and we've already talked about this, but just to brief us through this again, we do exactly what the government allows legally because all authority is from God. That's the end of story. 1 Peter 2, verse 15, we just read this, for such is the will of God. Such is the will of God. Listen, the will of God is to submit to earthly authority. Now that can fit a lot of categories. Not just the government supreme, but it can also fit uh, those who are parents, uh, 
teachers, leaders, any persons who have been put in places of authority. Now, the other thing is people will say, I don't know what the will of God is in this situation. Well, God has more clearly than anything I can think of said what his will is. Notice the verse again. For such is the will of God. You want to know what God's will is when it comes to submitting to authority? This is it. We are to submit. Paul would say in Romans 13, against that same backdrop of evil government at the time towards God's people, for there is no authority except from God. And you want to hear people, or probably hear people saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. There are no yeah, buts here. And those which exist, Paul says, are established by God. Nero? He didn't make any caveats. There are no yeah buts. So that's number one. Number two, we do exactly what the government allows legally because if we don't, we are opposing God. We are opposing God. Romans 13, 2. Therefore, against this backdrop of Nero and his ruthlessness towards God's people, Paul says, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Now, that word ordinance is a word that simply means arrangement or in this context, institution. You could use that word, the institution of God, the establishment of God. God set out to build it and to do it and to create it, and this is what he did, talking about authority. And God is so clear about submitting to authority that to go against that authority, that human authority, is to be akin to going against God. That's what he's saying here. And God is very serious about us going against him. Let me take you back to an Old Testament situation that will help you think through some of this. Go with me to Numbers chapter 16. Probably very familiar to you if you're a student of the scripture. Numbers chapter 16. The context is Moses writing this while the children of Israel are in the wilderness. They have left Egypt after 430 years of very horrific bondage. And God has now heard their cries and has brought Moses onto the scene along with his brother Aaron. And Moses has become the leader in leading these people out into the wilderness. Okay, Probably, best guesstimate by theologians is around 2 to 3 million people. That's a big crowd. Women and children and all involved. Again, Aaron was the brother high priest at the time. But as always, there are those people who are discontent with leadership. If you've ever been in leadership, you know personally, whether, again, you're a father or mother, doesn't matter, there's going to be somebody that doesn't like what you say or what you do. It's always going to be that. And in this case, it was no different. There were three men, we're told here in number 16, by the name of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, three men who rallied and mustered through evidently a lot of behind-the-scenes work. I'd kind of like to be a fly on the wall to see how they did all of this. We could probably guess through the verbal food chain, if you will, led through 250 people against Moses and Aaron. That's what the text tells us. Who thought they would take matters into their own hands and get some new leadership. Okay, it seems like a good idea. We're out here in the wilderness. This place stinks. It's hot. It's dry. It's dusty. We don't have everything we need. And by the way, it was so much better in Egypt. Let's get rid of this guy Moses and his brother. And here's what God says in verse 3. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough. 
For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? You know what they were saying? They were saying, look, we're all all God's people. We can make this collective decision together. Better yet, Moses, you're not making very good decisions, so we're going to take over. You just sit in the back, okay? I kind of hear them saying, this is my opinion. You can come along, but we're going to take over. Skip down to verse 13. They say, Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but you would also lord it over us? So now not only are they upset about the fact that they've left all this great stuff in Egypt, which they really didn't have, uh, they've just forgotten that already, and now they're saying, Moses, who in the world are you? So they're upset. But God was so angered by their rebellious hearts that he inflicted upon them a great calamity. Notice in verse 31 of number 16. And he finished speaking all these words, and it was then that the ground that was open was under them open and split open. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol. That's just a reference to um, the holding place, if you will, of eternal damnation. It's like the jail before the penitentiary. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of that assembly. All Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, The earth may swallow us up. And notice this in verse 35. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. I kind of envision in my mind that scene where these three men are presenting themselves to Moses and all of those folks that are with them get sucked down into the ground and the people who are looking around who started following these guys are going, we probably should leave now. And God says, not so fast. And burns them up. And burns them up. And you know, you would think that these folks would say, yeah, that probably wasn't very wise. Um, we, We didn't make a great decision there. But notice what happens on the very next day. The very next day. Verse 41. On the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron saying, you're the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. They're blaming Moses now. Look, it's your fault. And so you skip down to verse 49, and in between what you learn in those verses is that God sends a plague among the people to consume them. And we don't know what that plague was, but evidently it was some kind of supernatural thing that God intervened on them on and killed them. And we're told that there were 14,700 of them who died besides those who died of the 250 in Korah and all his people. So had Aaron not intervened, we're told, God would have consumed all of them. And we have a beautiful picture of the gospel right there that I won't go into, but Aaron really becomes the the picture and Moses become the picture of Christ himself intervening in the wrath of the Lord against sin. As Christ came to give his life as a ransom for us, Aaron intervened on the part of of the people and became that intermediary between man and God and God stopped the plague because of his intervention. But do you know why God was so angry? It's because of one reason. 
because these people were rebelling against whom he had put in place. God had decided that Moses was his man and Aaron would be the high priest. And God says, don't mess with my people. And I think the message to us is, don't mess with what God is doing. God has understood perfectly what he is doing. And we're not to play around with his commands. God has said in 1 Peter and Romans 13, very specifically to our culture today, do not mess with those I have put in place. And we say, but we don't like those people you put in place. And God may, may very well say to us, yeah, people have tried that on me before. And it didn't go so well for them. Listen, God puts people in authority. And we need to accept that. We don't have to like it, but we accept what God has done. And by the way, that goes with spiritual leadership as well. And now I'm really meddling. If you go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the, uh, not sure who wrote Hebrews. I could say Paul. We won't get into all that. But we are told this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. What's he saying? He's saying pastors, elders, spiritual leaders exercise authority of Christ when they preach and when they teach the word of the Lord. Perfect men? Certainly not. My wife's here. She'll tell you that. She knows me well. The whole point, though, is that God has established a system of authority to keep people in balance and keep people in check. And so our role is to submit to leadership so that life will be blessed by God. That's why. God wants to bless us. And so he's established a system of authority. Now, I don't know exactly what that means exactly, but it carries a weight of seriousness to us. The church is led by human men. One day, Christ is going to rule in our presence. Won't that be the day? We were watching. Debbie and I were driving just uh, yesterday or the day before, and we were uh, actually we were watching a show, and we were looking at these clouds coming, and it was a furious kind of a thing. And I just said to her, I said, that's what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back. But he's going to come to rule righteously and bring all of this to a conclusion. So the point is, again, to go against God's authorities is to go against God, which is not going to be favorable for us. It's not going to be favorable for us because of what God has commanded of us. Now, I have to believe, and this is my opinion here, I have to believe that all that has happened in our nation to rid the nation of God has brought about some of the fury of God and has brought about the things that we're seeing now. You've heard that over time. If you've lived long enough in the church, you know that that's not an unusual or uncommon statement. Uh, but I have to believe that we're seeing the full brunt of some of what God can do and will do. And let me just give you a hint of that because Paul gives us this in Romans 1. So let's get rid of my opinion for just a minute and let's see what's happening, I believe, in our current day as much as Paul saw in his day. So go with me to Romans 1 verse 18. In this beautiful epistle, the Apostle Paul is talking about the glorious goodness of the Lord, but then he comes to verse 18 and he says, now listen, it's almost like he's grabbing him by the face and he's saying, now listen carefully. 
And he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Why, Paul? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Now, if you were with us in our study in Romans years ago, you know that we said that God has placed in us an internal mechanism that gives us the evidence that he exists. Every human being knows that there is a superior. They may not know him as God, but they know that there is a superior being that exists. God placed it in the heart of every man. That's what Paul's talking about. Skip to verse 21. For even though they know God or they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And I have to believe Paul's talking about all of history of man as they've brought themselves along and lost sight of who God is and started worshiping whatever their heart wanted to worship. And we know that from history. Now watch this, though, as God displays and unleashes his judgment. Here's what we're told. Judgment number one, and it comes in three parts. Romans 1, verse 24. As a result of man giving up what he intuitively knows, he says, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. One of the first judgments that God's pronounced is that I will give you over to the lusts of your own hearts to the impurities that are already there. I'm going to give you over to that. I'm going to release myself from control of that and give you over. That's what the phrase means. Turn you over. Judgment number two, verse 26. And it is a progression, beloved. After that, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. We wonder why the growth of the homosexual movement is happening, and all that we see in this, it's right here. Because God has given over those people to their own sensual passions to follow whatever they think is right. There's a removal of what is natural and understood spiritually. And we'll see this even more fully in judgment number three. Look at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, now they've gone from believing that there is a God to worshiping these idols and now they don't even believe God exists anymore. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boasters, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. How about that one? Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Why? Because it's rebellion against God. They do not only do the same, but also give heartily approval to those who practice them. Wow. That word depraved that you see there in the verse means to not pass the test, to not pass the test. 
It's the test of what a refiner would use to test metals of various sorts. And when they're testing those metals, the metal couldn't pass the test because of the impurities that are there. And so that it fails. And so in God's mind here, in the, in the same relation is the mind can't pass the test any longer. So it is useless. It becomes unable to fit God's standards. And so spiritually, it is so useless, it is depraved. And the human heart is not, listen, the human heart is not naturally good. The human heart is naturally evil. And when God is removed and he removes himself from that naturally evil heart, it's not going to just naturally all of a sudden become good. It doesn't work that way. It's going to naturally follow the downward flow and get worse and worse and worse. And as God releases himself from that mind, he allows it to go into the depths of depravity to the point where it cannot even function as a rational mind anymore. You and I are looking in our culture today and we're asking the question, how is it that these people are making these statements? It doesn't even make logical sense. But to them it does. To them it's perfectly logical. Because that's what happens when the Spirit of God is removed from the mind. What seems to be illogical to us becomes very, very logical to the sinful mind and vice versa. And so we have this constant attack from what is right and what is wrong. We look at the world and we say, surely no one can believe that's right. That's just basic 101. And yet we see a culture just giving in to everything. It's right here in Romans 1. So the, the issue is not that God will judge, beloved, but that God has already begun his judgment. Very clear. Very, very clear. Paul wrote this centuries ago, and we're seeing it full-blown. And notice this. It's so bad, Paul says in verse 32 of Romans 1, that those people who, living, who are living in their sinful lusts and passions without any care for what God says are giving hearty approval to those who practice the same thing. It's like a birds of a feather flock together. One person will say, this is right. Oh, yeah, I think the same way. And so they agree with one another and they join hands together and, and associations are started and marches are started and, and riots are started and, and things go on and on and on. So that's the first two. Why we do exactly what the government allows us because of the fact that God is in full control and the negative consequences if we don't follow him. Here's another negative, though. We don't want to always be negative. We'll end with a positive. I promise you that. Number three, do exactly what the government allows legally because if we don't, you will cause government to come against you. And I'm just following the progression that Paul laid out here. This is not my order. Romans 13:2. look at the second part of this. They who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. They who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. That word condemnation can be used in various ways, but it means a decision, basically. It's the function or the effect for or against something used in a crime situation. Or there is some condemnation, some damnation. There's a going to law, if you will, in light of this. That's what the apostle's saying. Those who have opposed will go to bring law upon themselves. They will bring judgment upon themselves. So government that is put in place by God will consider you and I lawbreakers if we go against what they say. That's how government's going to treat us. 
Laws are put in place. You break the laws. You become a lawbreaker. And God is affirming that. And and beloved, listen, that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. It was the Hebrews who were so vehemently opposed to the Roman authorities that they constantly pushed and pursued insurrections. That's why Barabbas was wanted instead of Jesus. He was a terrorist against the government. He was a leader of a government terrorist movement to usurp the Roman authorities. And when Jesus didn't fit the bill for the Hebrews, they said, we want Barabbas because he'll lead us in this insurrection. Jesus won't do it. Put him on a cross. Although we know Jesus fought to get on the cross because he came for a different reason. Amen? But in response to the Hebrews' consistent and never-ending insurrection uh, movements, the Romans had enough, and in 70 AD they came through and they wiped out all the priests, murdered over, I don't know what the number is, I think I've heard it at a time, maybe a million people at the time, leaving no one left to carry on the priesthood. All of the sacrificial system stopped, which was also God using that evil situation for his own good because we know, according to what we studied in Matthew, that if it weren't for the ending of that Levitical priesthood line and the documentation, we would never understand that Jesus becomes the next apparent heir to the priesthood. So God used all that evil for his own purposes, which is what he does all the time. But what the Lord is telling us is, if you go against the legal prescription in your land, that you are currently under, you will suffer the consequences from that entity. Pretty clear. So you say, what are we to do? Well, we're to follow God always, submit to him, believe what he's told us, submit to those who he puts in place, and do what is good. And that's what Paul says next. Look at Romans 13, 3. Do what is good then, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Now, we explained all of that last week, but just suffice it to say is that God has said in his ordination of authority that I will, I being God, put in place those who have the power over life and death This is why the military can function. This is why the police can carry guns. This is God's ordination to be an authority over a society to protect society for the good and against evil. That's what Paul is talking about here. Even some government, even though it's run by evil people, at times, like in Nero's case in Rome, God will use for his own purposes. Because when there is no government, there is total anarchy. And that's not good. A guy named Robert Haldane did a commentary on Romans, and here's what he said about this particular section, and then we'll go on to the last two. The institution of civil government is a dispensation of mercy. Its existence is so indispensable that the moment it ceases under one form, it reestablishes itself in another, and that's so true, isn't it? One government is overrun by some group of people, and all of a sudden they become the new government. Why? Because it's intuitive in us that we need someone to lead us. That's what he's saying here. 
The world, ever since the fall, when the dominion of one part of the human race over another was immediately introduced in Genesis 3.16, has been in such a state of corruption and depravity that without the powerful obstacle presented by civil, civil government to the selfish and malignant passions of men, it would be better to live among the beasts of the forest than in human society. And that's true, isn't it? I mean, how many of you have felt like, man, this world keeps getting worse. I just want to go find an island with no people. Well, we feel that. And I think that's what Robert Haldane is saying. As soon as its restraints are removed, man shows himself in his real character. That's exactly right. You remove authority and a man will cut your throat for a bottle of water. It's true. You back a man or woman into a corner far enough and you remove all civil authority and restraint and they will think nothing of killing you for what they want and take a selfie doing it. And that came out of New York, right? You saw that. Where there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes, we see the last three chapters of the book of Judges were dreadful consequences and that's how the book ends. You remember Israel had no king. They had so rebelled that they had become such a pagan people intermixed with all the worlds around them because they usurped what God had called them to do and disobeyed everything God had said. There was no king to lead them and every man did what was right in his own eyes. You leave civil authority out and every child, every man, woman, and boy, every person under authority will do exactly what they want to do when they want to do it because there is no consequence. Why shouldn't I? That's the human heart. All right, number four, we do exactly what the government allows because if we don't, our conscience will convict us. Romans 13.5, therefore, right in line with all of what we just read, it is necessary to be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. What does that mean? Well, our conscience, consciences are something that's given to us by God It's that little mechanism inside of us, that little voice, if you want to say that, that tells us we're about to do something wrong or we've just done something wrong. Or it affirms us when we've done something right. Now, it's not perfect because it's tainted by sin. It's not the Holy Spirit, but it's this mechanism, something that God has built into us to affirm to us that we've done something right or done something wrong. Again, Okay, so God is saying, if you do something wrong, the Holy Spirit, talking to God's people is going to convict you in your conscience. That's why we say, oh, man, I'm so bothered by this or that. I just don't know if I should have done this or that. But we never want to turn that off because it's God's way of speaking to our hearts. Now, he speaks to us through his word, but the word then penetrates into our hearts and we hear it in our souls and we go, this is what's right. This is what's not right. And speaking of government, the Lord is saying, when you go against what I have established and put in order... To govern you, your conscience is going to be affected. Now, again, he's talking to God's people. He's not talking to the world. He's talking to God's people here. Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 2, I say, keep the commands of the king because of the oath before God. Now, Solomon was the king of Israel, but listen to what he's saying. Because of the oath before God, do not be in a hurry to leave him. That's the king. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. In other words, that guy out there who doesn't care about who's in authority is going to do whatever he thinks he wants to do. Don't join that guy. You're going to get into a lot of trouble. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? 
He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. And that's exactly right. That's what we're looking at right now. Lord, what is the proper way to live this life? What's right in your eyes when it comes to submission under authority? Are we to rebel against all forms of authority and cast out all authority because we believe that's right? No. God says, I put authority in place. You follow me and you submit to that authority. So when we seek to live a life free of ongoing sin and unconfessed sin, our conscience is free, right? I mean, when we, when we say, Lord, our, our, our hearts are troubled and we want to be pure before you, forgive us for our sin, then all of a sudden that conviction goes away, right? We feel the freedom of it all. We don't feel the weight of it anymore, which is the way we all should live. In Acts chapter 24, this is the Apostle Paul, he says, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. That's a great statement. What's the heart of the Apostle Paul? Hey, look, I want my conscience to be clean before the Lord first and also before men, before you. It's important, and that's the way God's people are to live. Second Corinthians 1.12, Paul would say this also, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience pure conscience. You want to know my testimony? It's in my conscience. I am fully free to live and be the person I am to be because my conscience is clear. That's the way we're to live. In holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God. We have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. We're free. Listen, you can convict us. You can commit us to a mental institution if you want. But I'm telling you, our hearts are free because we just delivered to you the word of the Lord. Listen, God has not called his people to follow after worldly systems pull us away from who he is. We are not to stand upon the rock of what man has done, but to stand on the rock of what God has done. Amen? Okay? Now, there are some things that are coming out in the, in the world right now that the church is being asked to adopt. And I think we need to be very careful that we don't adopt anything other than what the word of the Lord teaches us. Because if we stand upon something man says to stand on, it surely will crumble unless God is supporting it. Amen? And so let it be our purpose that our conscience be clear because if men want to convict us of a crime, let them convict us of being guilty of following the Lord. But let us not be guilty of following man and opinion and concept and ideas that seem to be right. Let's follow the Lord. And that's what the word of the Lord is saying right here. So when we follow God, all of those evil intentions are going to be a conviction into the conscience of the evil. In fact, Peter says in verse 12 of chapter 2, I should have asked you to keep your finger there. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the world. Keep your behavior excellent among the world. Let's put it that way those people who don't understand, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, and they will, they're going to say the church is crazy, 
they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. What's Peter saying? He's saying, listen, if you live your life according to the precepts and the principles of God's word, the world is going to come against you because they're not going to like it. It's going to convict them of their sin and their own conscience. But they're going to be so enamored with your righteous life that when Christ does come back, they're going to want to be a part of it. That's our, that's our calling. And they won't have anything to say. Acts 16.22, the crowd rose up together against the apostle and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods because they were speaking in the name of Christ. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison and commanded the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the, sto- feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he threw his sword and was about to kill himself. He drew his sword, excuse me. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembled with fear. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I'm reading that to you because the opposite is just as true. When we follow the word of the Lord and the mandates of God, the world is going to see our good works and they're going to want to know about this God that we serve. If you notice right there in that situation, Paul and Silas didn't get up and try to get out of the prison and say, oh good, the Lord has gotten us out of here. No, they stayed right there. And the soldier, which was the commandment of the authority for a soldier if he lost a prisoner, was to kill himself. He was about to do that and Paul and Silas hollered out and says, hey, we're still here. Right here in the prison. Now if you're the prison guy... Aren't you going to be kind of scratching your head saying, why didn't you run for your lives? What is wrong with you? And they were so convicted, or he was so convicted of Paul's following Christ that he wanted to know about who their Lord was. You see, it's really very simple when you think about it. When you and I follow the authority that God has put in place, regardless of whether we agree, that's not the point. God never told us we had to agree. He told us to obey. When we do that, the world is going to look at us and they're going to say, you are a bunch of fruitcakes. You should rise up and you should rebel also. Why aren't you standing with us? Well, we stand to a higher call. We stand to a higher king. Amen? We stand to a higher power. And our power, our king, our God has said, no, that's not what my people do. Don't do that. And the world is going to say, I'd like to know who your king is. Who is that guy? All right, and finally, and that really leads us into this. Really, as I was telling the first service, uh, everything that you paid your hard-earned money today for is coming that we need to pay attention to. And I really hope you'll hear this today. Number five, why do we do exactly what the government allows us to do legally? Because of one main reason, not only because of following Christ, but because this world is not our home. This world is not our home. Now, hear what I'm saying. And you may disagree with what I'm going to say, but you need to hear what the Lord is saying and you have to do business with Him, amen? You don't have to agree with me. I've said this many times before. You don't have to agree with me, but you better agree with God because it's not going to go well if you don't. 
So here's what the Lord says in, in John 18. This was the Lord himself. You remember as he was brought before Pilate, just before his crucifixion, Pilate has some questions for him, and here's what he says in John 18, verse 33. Pilate entered again into the praetorium, already had been there once questioning Jesus, and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? You can kind of hear the frustration beginning to build in his heart. And Jesus answered, Are you saying this in your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Interesting. Jesus always answers a question with a question. Pilate answered and says, I'm not a Jew, am I? In other words, I don't know about all this. Just tell me who you are, basically. Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? And notice this. Profound, profound truth. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If, and watch, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. What is the Lord saying? What is this amazing statement? He's saying, listen, remember that in this world, beloved, evil men do evil things. That is normal. Evil men follow evil intentions of their evil hearts. But God's people are not like that. The Lord helps us understand that we're we're not trying to make a nation a Christian nation. Now hear me carefully. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. A nation is an inanimate object. There are Christian people. People are Christians. Nations are not Christian. There's never going to be, there never has been a Christian nation because the heart is desperately wicked, right? Who can know it? Even God's people struggle with their own sin. What God is saying to us is, you cannot legislate a heart to follow God. You cannot write enough laws into the Constitution or amendments that will make a man or woman follow God. You can't do it. There's no matter what you try to do, in a legal sense, man will rebel against authority because man's heart is evil. So where does that leave us? that leaves us with being the witnesses for the world that is to come, to help this world to see that there is a kingdom beyond this world that is governed by the authority of the sovereign God of the universe. And we have had our eyes open to know that God, and we're his people. We're not of this world. This is not our home. This is not our place. As the old line says, we're just passing through. But too often our fight is to make a land a Christian land. And that's not going to ever happen. I hate to burst your bubble, but it's never going to happen. The Lord's already told us that in the book. What needs to happen is for God's people to distribute the love of Christ in this context under the submission of authority so that Jesus is lifted up as the true king. We obey Not because we always agree, but we obey because our king, the one who we serve, told us to. And that's all we need to know. That's why we submit. Because if you've read the book, beloved, you know that we're not staying here. Right? We're leaving. We're not building a world so that we're going to hang around. 
God has made that very clear. We're, we're building the kingdom of God. And our Lord said, that's of another realm. Jesus said, listen, if this were my world, yeah, you better believe it. I'd be calling my people to rise up and we would fight. That's what he's saying. But he says to Pilate, hey, no, I didn't come for that. It's not my world. I love it. I came to rescue hearts. I came to save the souls of men and women. I'm coming back, right? I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to be carrying the title deed to what rightfully belongs to me that the Father gave me, and I will take over what rightfully belongs to me. And then his new world and the new heavens and the new earth will be established and all evil will be dealt with. Do you see our purpose? Do you see why we're to submit to the governing authorities legally for what God has called us to do? The world is blind, beloved. The world is blind. It doesn't understand. Don't get lost and sucked into the concept that we are to follow everything that everybody says. No, get sucked into the concept that God has said, here's how you're to live. Study his book because he is the author of that kingdom and we belong to that kingdom. So suffering for God is a righteous, holy thing to do because the Lord suffered for us. Are we going to suffer in this? Yes. Listen to 1 Peter 2. We didn't look at this last week, but we want to close with just these couple thoughts here. Jesus says this, or Peter says this to the church after Jesus has been resurrected. And by the way, this church again was suffering greatly under the hand of Nero. He says, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? In other words, you do something wrong, the government comes against you, they lop off your head. What big deal is that? You deserved it, right? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this very purpose. What? Yeah. God called you out of the world to suffer for him, to be a reflection of him. Notice, since Christ also suffered for you, here's why, here's why, leaving you as an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, quoting the Old Testament, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him, that's the Father, who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. What's he saying? Pretty clear. Jesus displayed himself in suffering and agony. And he says, listen, when you become my people, expect this. But this is right. You suffer for me in the midst of a crooked, twisted, messed up world. And that will find great favor with the Father. That's our calling. That's our understanding. And anonymous, I don't know anonymous what that means. You know what that means. Second century, way, way back said this of Christians. And it's really beautiful and it's kind of like a commentary of Romans 13. It's a little lengthy, so try to follow me and then we'll close with this, I promise you. Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe for they neither inhibit, inhabit cities of their own nor employ a particular form of speech nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity 
The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation or of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them had determined and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own cities, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws of their, by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Powerful. Beautiful description of God's people. And so there you go. What's the answer to the question? Why is it right as a Christian or what is my right as a Christian in the land that I'm living in? Number one is to follow God. Number two, to remember that we are not to oppose the ordinance of God. If we do, the government will come after us. Number three, our conscience. Number four, will convict us. And number five, ultimately, we're to remember in the midst of all of this that we don't belong to this world. This is not our home. We're just passing through. God has given to us, many of you, the right of carrying the sword. I'm not talking about concealed weapons. I'm talking about under authority, military, police. You've been given the right to preserve life and to protect us from evil. That's under authority that God has instituted. For those of us who are under that authority, we're to honor and to obey until the authority commands us to go against the word of the Lord. And then we have to stop. And that's what we do. That's what we will do. So what can we do practically? You can vote, right? You can go to the voting booths. You can speak out under the First Amendment of freedom of speech. Those are all righteous things. You can go to court. As long as it's not a brother against a brother. That's 1 Corinthians 6. You have these legal means in our country to do this. You can run for Congress, Right? You can do that if you don't like things, but you are to never usurp what God has put in place outside of the legal boundaries of what he has said. Again, unless those authorities demand for us to go against the word of the Lord, and then we'll take up Acts chapter 4, where Paul says, excuse me, Peter says, we cannot stop preaching in the name of Jesus, even though you command us to do so. Okay? All right. Well, that's a lot more than you paid for. So 
we'll just um, we'll just put that as a credit towards your account. Okay, how about that? That'd be good. All right. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the clarity and the truth of your word. And uh, Lord, it is truly a mystery why you chose sinful men to be representatives of your holiness. Lord, it could only be, at least in my mind, it could only be because you are so great and so awesome and so powerful that you have this incredible ability to take what is broken and messed up and so full of sin, so full of rejection and so full of just fleshly life, You have the incredible ability to take that and make something good from it to proclaim your excellencies. Only you, Father, as the authority of all authorities, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords could do such a thing. How you take our broken and feeble hearts and you expose to us the depths of our sin and you say to us, my son has come to pay the debt that you owe me. He has made it full. He has paid it full. It is done. All has been satisfied. Everything has been justified. You are redeemed. You have been bought back out from the hand of bondage of sin. For all those of you who confess my son as Lord and master of your lives and receive unto him and from him the forgiveness that must take place to be right with the Father. Lord, we thank you and we praise you this morning that you've made yourself known in such a way. May we go forth from this place being examples of your holiness and help us as we listen to the news and see all the things that are going on to live the life that you've called us to live, remembering we're not of this world, but reflectors of your glory. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.